Good cross in. Evan White, brilliant finish. And here's the danger. Sam Kerr is away. Is this to be her moment? Miedemar. And Vivian Miedemar scores again. Welcome to Football 51 with everything you need to know about the football played by 51% of the population, women. We'll bring you all the reaction to a dramatic Conti Cup final and be asking why England has got us believing. We'll also be chatting about goal sizes and Saudi Arabia. That's all coming up on this episode of Football 51. The WSL is on hold now until the 22nd of March. Yeah, it's been left quite finely poised at the top. There's only four points separating the top three teams. Man City on the top with 40 points, Chelsea second with 39, Arsenal in third on 36. But both those second and third teams have a game in hand on Man City, so all very exciting at the top. Even more tight at the bottom, where the bottom three are separated by just three points. The problem with all these postponements that we've had in the past means that no one really knows when these fixtures are going to be sorted out. But... For now, at least, it's very exciting in the WSL and we're looking forward to resuming it when it comes back in March. The first domestic action back after this international break is the FA Cup on the 15th of March. But the teams are away to play all their international fixtures, the She Believes Cup and the other tournaments coming up. But last weekend, we had a final domestic competition, the Conti Cup Final. to Anderson again and the elders at the back post and it was knocked down towards Beth England who's made it 1-0 to Chelsea her first chance and Beth England takes it emphatically for Emma Hayes' side Hinkley Ford has switched sides here for a moment good ball, Nobbs! another good save by Berger and what a few minutes the Chelsea goalkeeper has had Van der Donk went for the return and got it and the crossover towards Miedemar brought it down oh brilliant save again she's been absolutely inspired today Berger six minutes of normal time to go Arsenal with the corner Williamson got a head to and Williamson's there again and finally they've done it in the Continental Cup final. Hussbutt looking for Kirsch. Nardebeck has come across. Kirsch done well here. Gets back to her feet. England's a mart at the back post. She's waiting for it. She's got it! England's won it for Chelsea! Surely now they've won their first ever Continental Cup. Yes, it was Chelsea that took the Continental Cup victory from Arsenal. It was 2-1 in the end, but a very, very tight game. Just a quick reminder, the Continental Cup is played between the WSL and the Championship, so Tier 1 and Tier 2. And Continental is a brand of tyre, <laughs> just so you know. It's not, not, about, not about the countries. So Beth England scored, her, scored the first goal in the opening 10 minutes. It was a bit of a scuffle from, from across, but she managed to flick the ball back in that Marin Mielder managed to keep in from the cross. It was, it was quite tight on that line, but she did manage to get that goal. 
Then there was nothing for a lot of the game. Arsenal dominated the possession, but Chelsea held strong in defence. Leah Williamson thought that she had scored the equaliser that would take it to extra time in the 85th minute. But in stoppage time, Beth England scored the winning goal on the post. It was a brilliant run up the pitch from Sam Kerr, who actually got floored, but then decided not to appeal for anything and to just carry on, bring the ball into Mielda, who made a brilliant step in and just a touch in on the post from Beth England. So that's the first time Chelsea have won the Continental Cup. Arsenal had won it five times. And it was a big change from the last time Arsenal played Chelsea when they were defeated 4-1 and three goals down in 20 minutes. I mean, it was just, it was a lot tighter, but it was just as heartbreaking for the Gunners to lose like that. Thinking they got themselves back into the game, thinking that, you know, they'd managed to get themselves another 30 minutes at least to try and make their dominance count because they had dominated possession, they created more chances than Chelsea by far. But unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, fantastically for Chelsea, they managed to get the winner. Still fans slipping out there. Listen, listen, I'm impartial. I don't know what you're talking about. But it was it was a great day for Chelsea. They managed to, against the odds really, on the day, given how the game panned out, come out winners in what was a fantastically exciting final. Yeah, and Emma Hayes actually said after the, uh, after the game, she said the best team didn't win, but the most resilient one did. That kind of annoyed you a bit, didn't it, Claire? Um, not so much that. It was more the fact that she was saying along the lines of in three years' time, um, who's going to look back on the final and remember that Arsenal dominated the game. They're only going to remember that Chelsea won. I find that attitude when it comes to football sort of problematic because it's not about... You can't celebrate getting lucky. Not, I don't. I, I feel like it's I harsh to say that... I lucky. Yeah, I know. As I said that, I sort of caught myself. I feel harsh saying Chelsea got lucky. More Ars- Arsenal were quite wasteful. But I don't think it's right of Emma Hayes to sort of claim that she's she's masterminded a victory when... Arsenal, if they'd taken their chances, would comfortably have won the game on the day. I think it's interesting that Emma Hayes has often said, scrap the Conti Cup, no one needs the Conti Cup, get rid of it. And now she's won it and she's so excited about it. And I think it's difficult. Has Emma Hayes masterminded this? You have to say that she did have incredible strength and depth. You know, she had a bench she could rely on. She has fielded a team with such talent. And Joe Montemurro was struggling on the bench. But yeah, we'll see. So um, we each we decided to each take a team to sort of analyse. Yes, uh, I'll take the losers. Arsenal, unfortunately, didn't come out on top on the day. What would have been their sixth Conti Cup in just nine years? The competition's only existed for nine years and Arsenal would have won six out of the nine. That shows their dominance in this trophy in the past. So it was a massive result for Chelsea to win. Emma Hayes herself, as we spoke about there, admitted that Chelsea were outplayed, outpossessed, outfootballed by the Gunners on the day. Yeah, but it's a similar story for Arsenal in these big games where they're great on the ball, they keep it really well, but they have a soft centre at the back. And when it comes to crosses coming in from wide areas or even just low balls coming in from wide areas, they really struggle with that to deal with it. And both Beckingham's goals came from really avoidable positions for Arsenal. It's great that they've got a fantastic midfield and that is the Arsenal way. And Joe Montemurro on Twitter himself said he spoke about the values of Arsenal which is really important and there's a way to win but at the end of the day the winners were Chelsea because of Arsenal's lack of prowess in front of goal I mean Miedemar was unusually wasteful Catelyn Ford 
one of her first appearances for Arsenal, missed a really, really, really good chance, especially when you compare it to Beth England at the, at the other end, who was just so fantastically clinical. Yeah, it was quite frustrating from an Arsenal fan's perspective to see the ball go wide so many times. Mm. I mean, on the Chelsea side, they didn't have much possession, but when they did, they really they made it count a bit more and they're more of an attacking threat. I don't think you'd say any of the final touches on the goals were beautiful or anything, but they really pounced on that on that finish. Yeah. What I found quite interesting is everyone sort of singing the praises of Beth England, you know, saying this player who used to play part-time when she was at Donny Bell's and she used to work in a chip shop and she used to work in M&S and only have three hours sleep the night before and she went on loan to Liverpool when she was at Chelsea and that changed her and she really wants to, you know, be this amazing player. Yes, she is incredible. She's now scored 21 goals in all competitions this season. But I think the goals that she scored in this game, maybe this is controversial, could have gone to other people very, very easily. That ball that Mielder kept in for the first goal, you could see Sam Kerr's right foot was reaching for it at the same time. If she hadn't hit it, Sam Kerr would. I also think that Mielder's other strike for the stoppage time winner would have gone in without Beth England's touch. So yes, Beth England's amazing, but I actually think the hero of the Chelsea side is Anne Catherine Berger. See, we had a bit of a disagreement about this in the office before. You saying that Beth England, not so much lucky, but stole the goals of other people. For me, if you're a striker and you're in that position, you've got to take the chance. Who cares about what everyone else is doing? They might miss it. If the ball's even on the line, smash it in. It's your goal. Fantastic. You get to celebrate. To use uh, Emma Hayesism, three years' time, no one's going to remember that Mary Mielder or Sam Kerr potentially could have scored goals in the Conti Cup final. What they're going to remember is that Beth England scored twice and was the match winner yet again for Chelsea? I don't know. I think I think we'll have to agree to disagree on this one because, yeah, they'll remember that England got it, but they'd also remember if it was a Mielder and Kerr, wouldn't they? Sure, but I, I don't so much have a problem with my strikers being selfish. I'd rather have a striker who's selfish and actually gets the ball in the back of the net than sort of tries to spend all their time setting up other players or letting them score. You know, she's in the team to score goals, and if she's doing that, she's done her job. It shouldn't really matter what anyone else is doing, I don't think. Do you know what's really interesting? That like we're focusing on the forwards yeah. and people always focus on the forwards, True. don't they? On the attacking threat. True. And actually, in this game, Anne Katchenberger was was amazing. Mm. Emma Hayes said she was unbelievable. I know she always overpraises her players, but she say, she did some brilliant saves from Louise Quinn, Jordan Nobbs, even Miedemar. The Miedemar one was at very, very close incredible. range. She just stomached a ball. She came in on the near post and just, just took it to the stomach and she, she required treatment after that, but she got up. And that was really, really impressive work from her. I mean, yes, if Arsenal had got on target more, they probably would have got it in. But Berger was was a real asset to that Chelsea side. And I think it's it does show that Chelsea squad that we can talk about how impressive every part of their of their team was, that they've got that real, we say it again and again, that strength in depth. You know, they've got that squad of very, very impressive players. And Arsenal, you know, you have to point out they were missing Beth Mead, Leah Volti, Jen Beattie, Kim Little. These are huge names for their squad. And they didn't really have a replacement for that. Whereas, like you say, oh, obviously Frank Herbie is not not four players, but you know they managed to replace her very easily. Sure, but when you're competing in three competitions, as these big teams are, Chelsea only competing in two this year. But generally, when you're competing in three competitions, as all these big three English teams are, 
you need to have a big squad. It's a squad game and there's no rule against having good strength in depth, which Chelsea are blessed to have. We're now into the international break and it's the She Believes Cup. This is, if you haven't heard of it before, it's an invitational tournament. This is the fifth time it's happening, taking place in the USA. There are four teams, the USA ranked first, England sixth, Japan 10th and Spain 13th. This is the first time that Spain are taking part. Last year it was Brazil, but Brazil have gone off to another tournament, which we'll talk about later. It goes from the 5th to the 11th of March. England are playing USA first on Friday at midnight, then Japan on Sunday and then Spain next Wednesday. It looks as though that game against USA is probably going to be the decider between the two teams. England and USA are definitely the two favourites for the tournament. Japan and Spain unlikely to pull up many trees or cause many surprises. Spain, of course, did quite well in the World Cup, didn't they? They surprised a lot of people. Yeah, they were they were not bad. You know, they were only knocked out by the USA 2-1, which is the same as England, actually. Mm. And what's interesting about this Spanish squad is they won the Under-17 World Cup. They're runners-up in the Under-20 World Cup. So they've got a lot of young talent coming through. That said, they did just draw nil-nil to Poland, so that's not great. <laughs> Japan shouldn't be underestimated, though. They did uh, actually beat the USA to win the World Cup in 2011, got silver in the Olympics in 2012, silver in the World Cup 2015. And, of course, they're the home nation for the Olympics, aren't they? So they're going to be really wanting to stake stake their claim. We talk about the Spanish golden generation that appears to be coming through. England have got quite a good generation of footballers themselves right now. Youngsters like Chloe Kelly are going to be making their first real foray into the national team. And Beth England, who we spoke about earlier, is probably in the form of her life right now. Kelly's managed nine goals for Everton this season, which shows how good she's been. And it'd be really exciting to see her team up with Ellen White up front for England. Also, the defence of the English team is pretty decent at the minute. We talk about Leah Williamson, who scored in the Conti Cup final. At the other end of the pitch, there was Millie Bright in there for Chelsea. And Steph Horton, of course, is a legend. So I'm pretty excited about England's chances. Except for the fact that they're missing and their star player of all time. Lucy Bronze is out. She hasn't missed a single camp and she's been present at every single game for the past five years. But she's got a calf injury. She's not travelling with the team. She's going to stay at Lyon for treatment. You know, she was nominated for a Ballon d'Or. She was European Player of the Year. She's a really big loss. They were also missing Beth Mead, who is in really good form at the moment. She's out because of knee injury. And it's quite interesting as well. You mentioned all the young talent. Lauren James is actually out because of an injury. And everyone was kind of saying, why didn't she get selected? And the club did actually eventually confirm that that she is suffering from an injury. Ellie Roebuck got a couple of knocks, but now she is fit and well to go with the team. So I think, actually, I was hopeful for England, but then after that news of Lucy Bronze, I was not. Although they do have a secret weapon that isn't Lucy Bronze, Dawn Scott. So this is their first camp with their new physical performance manager. And she was part of the USA setup. And a lot of people say that USA are the best team because they have the fitness. England have a lot of skill, but USA have the fitness. So now, if England have that level of fitness, it could happen for them. Well, it's interesting you talk about the USA there. They've got a brand new coach, Vlatko Andonovsky, who selected his 23-player squad, which includes all the 
usual big names we all know about. Abby Dahlkemper, we know from the World Cup. Crystal Dunn, who we know from her time over here at Chelsea. And Becky Sauerbrand, all at the back. Midfielders like Lindsay Horan and Rose Lavelle, who were fantastic in the World Cup. And Kristen Press, who, of course, scored against England in that World Cup semi-final. We know about the quality they've got. I've not even mentioned Megan Rapinoe. They have fantastic quality and, as we spoke about with Chelsea, a lot of strength and depth. Whether that fitness thing will be huge for them is quite interesting to be seen because there definitely is an argument that there were such fine margins in between England and the USA in that World Cup semi-final. Obviously, if Steph Horton puts that penalty away, who knows what could have happened? Mm. I don't like to think about it. It kind of makes me well up. But the thing is, I have to say that I think that England will do it this time. I really think that England stand a chance of retaining their She Believes Cup from last year and getting one over on the USA after the World Cup heartbreak last year. That is a big claim because England have only won two of their last eight games. I'll yeah. give you that. I'll give you that. The form is not good. All the evidence points to the USA getting their crown back. But I really think this English crop of young players are very exciting and I really think there's something to look forward to in the years to come. And I, I genuinely believe that this could be the start of something really special for the England national team. I think it's going to be USA first, Japan second, I'm going to say. England third and Spain fourth. What's, what's your beef with your own country? Why are you putting England third? No, no, no. When I'm it comes biased. to international football, you've got to be ridiculously blindly biased and put England at first, USA second, Japan third, Spain fourth. Although I'm willing to say that Spain could easily come third because of that golden generation of players we were talking about before. Maybe the Sheep of the East Cup isn't the biggest tournament going on. They've got a new tournament, the Tournoi de France, and now this has France, who are fourth, Canada, who are eighth, Netherlands, who are third, and Brazil, who are ninth. So actually, the rankings are higher than the She Believes Cup. So I wonder if France thought, we're not invited to the She Believes Cup, or we're not playing in the She Believes Cup. Let's have a tournament of our own. Let's put the best players in there. That's the 4th to the 10th of March, and some really great matches to look forward to. Potentially, but you have to say those American players are the real stars of the women's game still, and those are the ones who are going to bring in all the crowds, you'd think. Hi, I'm Sophie Engel. You're listening to Football 51. Just one game this week, so no time for our player or moment of the week, listeners. I'm very sorry for you all to hear that, but that moves us nicely onto the news section of our podcast. And what's been in the headlines this week has been the debate about small goals in the women's game. Fabio Capello a couple of weeks ago now mentioned that he thinks that pitches and goals should be made smaller for women. But that's caused a lot of controversy amongst many people within the game who completely disagree. Yeah, there's quite a lot of voices who disagree. Jill Ellis, who was the former manager of the USA national women's team, actually said at that event that Fabio Capello was speaking at that she disagrees. She says the level of athleticism for goalkeepers will evolve. And... You know, there's been Karen Bardsley, who's been the goalkeeper for the England team for ages and ages now. She said it would jeopardise the fight for equality. Beth England has spoken out and said it's disrespectful to keepers. A lot of people seem to be saying, include Beth England included, that women footballers are fighting to be equal with men. And if they decide to have goals that are smaller, they'll be seen inferior to men. So it's against the battle that they're fighting. I mean, I'm going to play devil's advocate here and just put forward the argument for there being smaller goals. And that's purely based on physicality. So average height, women are smaller than men. I'm wondering, because goalkeeper is a position that where you have to be quite tall. 
So if it makes it too difficult with these large size goals for women to be able to um, save as many shots and be as sort of effective in goal, again, purely just playing devil's advocate here, but could there be a genuine argument that smaller goals would make goalkeeping a lot easier and make the game a lot more exciting to watch? I think on the one hand, you know, Erin Cuthbert makes a good point where she says, what's next? Smaller balls, smaller 18-yard boxes, you know, where do you stop? Where do you draw the line? But actually, I read a really interesting article by Katie Wyatt of The Telegraph, and she said, the problem is not women's bodies. The problem is the habit of seeing men's bodies as the default. I don't know if any of you have ever read Is Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez. Absolutely amazing book. Really recommend it. Basically, she says that most of the data that's collected in the world to decide what size everything should be is men. Actually, only 39% of participants in studies, medical studies or in sport, are women, according to the British Medical Journal. So actually, you know, maybe the problem is that we're looking at it as, okay, should we adapt and fit women to the men's goal sizes? When actually, maybe the problem is, why is the men's goal size the default in the first place? It is quite an interesting argument to see that the default setting, like you say, is to base the women's game around the men's game. And I'm wondering, just purely on that point, the idea that you have the exact same facilities, the exact same pitch and the exact same goal size, does that not mean that you're not modifying the game for women footballers' needs? Do you, you, see, what, do you see what I'm saying? Have I explained that badly? Not really. Okay, so what I'm trying to say is that if the assumption is that the um, all the studies and all those kind of things are done purely without any adaptation to what women need. So we've spoken in the past about how um, pitches need to be adapted ever so slightly just purely because of um, more ACL-prone knees. Would it be... Is there an argument to suggest that if you're now adapting goals and pitch sizes to suit the women's game, would that not be beneficial for them in the long run to sort of to put out a higher quality product? I think the problem is that the men's game is so established that if you brought out a women's version, it would have to work all the way and put in all the legwork sure. to make it have ju- to be just as respected. Definitely. So if you take an example of other sports like hockey, the pitch is the same size, the goal is the same size, but what actually happens is the goal is smaller than football goals. So it makes less of a difference how much bigger the, the w- w- female and male goalkeepers are. It's not like it looks really big if you've got a female goalkeeper in the goal. I personally have to say that I think that it's not the best idea, just purely because of the fact that it will be another stick for casual sort of haters of the women's game who don't actually watch any of it. Just another stick for them to beat the women's game with to say, oh, they don't even play with proper sized pitches. They don't play with proper sized goals. It's not as good as the men's game because of this and that and this and that. It will turn people off from watching it, I think, rather than turn them on. But I do think there genuinely is an argument to suggest that there should be some form of adaptation to suit women's needs when it comes to women's football that just isn't done enough as it is today. There's also been some other big news in football this week. In Saudi Arabia, they have announced that they're launching a new national female football league in March. So this is two years since the ban on women attending football stadiums lifted. The league will be government funded and it will be a regional league and then all the winners from each city will compete in the WFL Champions Cup. Now, 
In 2015, a report said that over 73% of women in Saudi Arabia were inactive. But some people are saying this isn't enough. This is a bit of a face. What do you reckon? I think it's a great step forward in terms of it's giving uh, women in Saudi Arabia the chance to get involved in a sport that they might not have been able to get involved in before. Fantastic. I'm all for that. I'm not going to criticise them for doing something that they should have done a long time ago. That's the only thing I can criticise them for is that it's not come sooner. The idea that they are opening up and allowing women to do more things is obviously a good thing. But I totally see and kind of agree with the argument that this is no more than a sticking plaster to real systemic issues that exist in Saudi Arabia. So if you think about the fact that women still need permission to open a business or get a divorce or do basic things, and the fact that they were only allowed to drive a year ago, that kind of stuff is still a massive problem in Saudi Arabia. And I don't know if a women's football league is really going to solve that. I'm just trying to imagine what it would be like to live in a society like that where you can't drive and where if you're a women's footballer that was just is just not a thing and you know they have this national league they're launching but does that mean that if people see women playing football on the street they're going to treat them okay you you, ne- you never know yeah it might slowly change attitudes but I don't know I, it's a step in the right direction sure. for sure there's think, no doubt I think in a country like that you're never going to get overnight change so you're going to need baby steps in the right direction, certainly. So if this, even if this does bring about gradual change and small change that could take years to genuinely show its effect, I think that is a positive thing. I don't think that Saudi Arabia is suddenly going to become a tolerant sort of gender equal paradise off the back of there being the WFL in existence. But I do think that anything that challenges stereotypes that already exist in the country can only be a great thing. And another country that's challenging stereotypes is Finland. The Finnish top division will now change its name from the Women's League to the National League. National League in Finnish is Kansalinen Liga. Phenomenal pronunciation. Yes, I am fluent in Finnish. (laughs) So last year it became one of the few organisations to have equal pay for the men's and women's national teams. And I am a real stickler for either saying men's football and women's football or ignoring the men and ignoring the women. It's such a big deal. You know, we had it Arsenal on their website calling it not calling it the women's team and the first team. They were calling it the women's first team, the men's first team. I think it makes a huge difference. And if you look at it, in England, we have the Women's Super League. In Germany, it's Frauen Bundesliga, which I think means Women's Bundesliga. In France, it's Division 1 Feminine. Why is it women that always have to have the name attached to it? It just reasserts male dominance. I think it's a great thing that they've gotten rid of the prefix. I don't really see... The point of it, obviously, constantly we refer to it women's football on this podcast and on all conversations about women's sport. But I think it's probably a good thing to sort of subconsciously or or consciously start dissociating ourselves with the idea that women's sport is different from men's sport. Obviously, there are subtle differences and not so subtle differences that do exist. But the idea that you are differentiating them negatively off the back of the fact that Women's football is played by women and men's football is proper football. Yeah, it's like men. men's the default, isn't it? And well, it's not even called men's subset. football. It's just called football. Yeah. So the idea that if you're going to, yeah, like you said, it's either women's football and men's football or just football, one or the other. And either's fine with me. Yeah. Just don't make men the default. 
Right, that more or less brings us to the end of our episode this week, unfortunately, listeners. But there are some things for you to look out for over the coming weeks when we're not going to be here next week, unfortunately. The USA against England in the She Believes Cup is going to be a fantastic match, so I recommend that you all tune into that, plus all the other fixtures between Japan and Spain and all the other matches that are going to be taking place in that tournament. And in the Tournoi de France, the new tournament for the big nations, we've got Netherlands against Canada this week, and the big match is going to be on the 10th of March. France against the Netherlands. That is going to be an absolutely huge game. The World Cup runners-up against the fourth-place team. We are going to be back in two weeks' time, but until then, if you want to get in touch with us on the socials, we are on Instagram at football51pod. With the same thing on Twitter, give us a shout. We'll be back in two weeks' time.